Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you on a journey into the Crucible for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. I'm your co-host, Zach Armstrong, and I'm joined, as always, by my mutated twin from across the ocean. It's Ed Pocock. How are you, Ed? Hello, Zach. I am doing well. Considering it's 2020, it's September and I'm still here. I count that as a success. That, that really is. That really is. Uh, the keen ear listener will remember when Ed literally got stuck in, uh, what country was that? It was New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand. Probably about as far away from the UK as you can possibly get. Yes, yeah, so we're we're glad we got you rescued. Uh, we got you rescued from there. It was quite that quite an op of joining up with Old Boomy and Com Officer Kirby uh, to to get you out of there on the pterodactyl. It was um, it was pretty intense. Indeed, pretty intense. part of me kind of wishes I could just go back there now, but you know we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> oh, indeed. And uh, today, listener, if uh, you read the title, you may know this already, but we are joined by Justin of Tabletop Royale, the Keyforge streaming team, who is here to talk about what he's learned from the Tournament of Champions, which is their structure for how they play through Keyforge decks on their stream. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Hey, I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. We always love it when we have guests who uh, also have recording equipment, so they already have a nice mic. It's, it's, really, it's really something else. I pride myself on audio. I, I, if audio is wrong on our stream ever, it makes me feel insane. So hopefully I sound okay. <laughs> you, well, you sound great to me. You sound great uh, to me. And before we kick off today's episode, we have promised at the end of previous episodes that if anyone leaves us interesting reviews, then we will definitely read them out. And this is one such review coming from a certain Mr. Shapsation. Uh, He says, We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. However... If one does intend to voyage further into the Crucible, there is no better vantage point than answering the call of discovery alongside Ed and Zach. Like many others, I initially came to call of discovery for Zach's promise of ultra-competitive deep dives into local meta trends and discussions of hyper, hyper, oh goodness, hypergeometric probability theory that support whether I should play or hold my curiosity in Worlds Collide Sealed. In my case, my opponent pulls me off the third key with a legacy Dexter, but I really return for each, each week to vicariously experience just a modicum of Ed's personal excitement when he continually rediscovers just how Keyforge Keyforge can be. 
That or because I'm stuck in the perpetual trance of his hypnotic, melodic British accent that was born for podcast radio. Oh, you sensation. Call of Discovery is a staple listen among anyone who considers themselves a forger of the keys. Wow, we did not deserve that review. And Shapsation, have you potentially been playing Arkham Horror the card game? Because this wording is 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 absolutely eloquent. And I think this is a challenge uh, to all of our listeners. Please, if you can uh, meet or surpass this review in terms of its eloquence in terms of its lavish uh, ornate nature then please do but i must say we only accept one star or five star reviews none of that funny business between two and four stars so leave us a one star review or a five star review and we will be <laughs> delighted to read it oh man yeah that was uh, that was quite the review and it almost it only cost us uh, $400. Uh, on an unrelated note, our Patreon has been live for nine months. <laughs> no, that was really lovely. Thank you. Uh, thank it you. Was very, it was very Night Vale-esque if you ever listened to the Night Vale podcast. Yeah, it Ooh. was very Night Vale. Ooh. Yeah. Ed Maybe could this breathe is a, a new podcast for me. That's pretty Ed, good. That's pretty mm-hmm. good. Ed could breathe the, the British Cecil, the British Cecil Baldwin. <laughs> Deep cuts. Deep, deep, po- cuts. deep podcast cuts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Call of Discovery, obviously up there with uh, Welcome to Night Vale. You know, don't question it. Um, so before we dive into talking about the Tournament of Champions on Tabletop Royale, uh, we're going to get to know Justin a bit better and also Tabletop Royale a little better if you uh, haven't watched, which it's a great quarantine activity, by the way. So we'll get into that. So, Justin, how did you start playing Keyforge? Well, I, I pretty much followed it from its first announcement. I mean, Nathan and I have been playing card games as long as I can remember, pretty much starting with my early childhood. I was trying to figure out what all my older brother's magic cards meant. So I've always been mm. into card games. I've played, I want to say, I don't want to say hundreds, but probably I've explored or dabbled in 50 plus different card games throughout my life. Uh, so Keyforge immediately took my interest because one of my least favorite things about card, ga- card games is their metas and how metas become stale after a new set comes out pretty yeah. quickly. Net decking tournaments, they're all, it gets pretty samey after a while. Uh, limited formats like limited magic draft seals. Those are always my favorite because different things could happen every single time you play. So that's what Keyforge has just innately as a mechanic in the game. So that's why I decided it was for me and uh, we Nathan and I both bought a deck display each, played through it, bought another one, played through each one. We were like, this game's incredible. It's exactly what we expected. Mm. Uh, well, probably not exactly what we expected, but greater than. Um, the mechanics were very eloquent and new. The win condition was unlike anything else we'd ever played before, where you're sort of racing against each other. Not a lot of card games do that. It's usually like, kill the opponent, you know. Right, Take right. Take them to zero health. But that wasn't really how Keyforge worked. So we, it appealed to us from the start and obviously we've been playing it ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got that quality of a racing game where, uh, you interact a lot. Like I was a little worried at first about maybe a solitaire vibe to it and who can just get, uh, get there first. And while some very rare decks, you know, play that way, it's, uh, 
it really there's a lot of interaction to worry about. Yeah, the um, decks that play solitaire against each other, those are the least interesting games, right? But when there's mm-hmm. just a little bit of cutthroat stuff happening on both sides, that's those are the most interesting games. Yeah, uh, definitely. And definitely. And what made you take that step to want to capture those most interesting games on video? Some of our listeners might have heard the story of the inception of Tabletop Royale from your Tabletop Royale other half, uh, Nathan. And, and please do listeners go back to that. But for those that haven't heard, um, how did Tabletop Royale come about? So after we each opened up, I think it was it was four deck displays plus two st- no, plus a starter each. So we each had exactly 50 decks, totaling 100. So we we're trying to figure out how do we figure out which of these is the best one? I don't know. I We have to play them all, obviously. So how do we do that? So we started thinking of what kind of tournament structure can we do? All right, let's try this. We'll do. We'll take eight decks and we'll play them in uh, round robin. And we'll see which ones do the best. And we'll kind of take all the records and combine them and keep playing until we're, we're sort of whittled down. So we played through the first eight, our deck of pod of eight decks, rather. And at the end of that, we're like, we should be recording this. This is going to be a lot of Keyforge content. We have hundreds more games to play, so why not put it on video somehow? And I was just like, why don't we stream it on Twitch? Because I dabbled a little bit uh, with Twitch streaming in the past, and there wasn't really a Keyforge presence on Twitch at that time. So we said, okay, uh, let's go get some equipment, and we'll start streaming on this day. So I went and bought a camera. We got some microphones, some lighting, although lighting is a whole other issue. We <laughs> we sort of had to build on that as we went. But we get our first stream like I think a week later. It didn't look great. Uh, you could hear a laptop fan blazing the entire time as I used an old laptop that the processor just was not happy with trying to stream it. That's kind of how we started. And we kind of, we tried to get better every stream from there. And I think that is there a lesson in here for other potential people that want to start streaming some content, want to start some video content, whether it be video or audio, not to wait until the content looks perfect to get it out there, but just to start making that content and uh, iteratively improve it as it goes. Yeah, you got to start somewhere, right? So you have to start recording. You have to figure out what your problems are. You improve a little bit at a time. Our goal in the first month or so was just do something better every time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and we, we still are improving to this day. I'm still making stream changes every couple of weeks for things that bother me. I just recently added a tiny animation to our start screen, which is a little Easter egg that not many people maybe know about. Ooh, how often do you all stream? What's the nutshell version of if somebody wants to watch some live Keyforge being played these days, uh, fill up a couple of their nights? Uh, when should they tune in and where should they tune in? Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, 7.30 Eastern until about 10 p.m. Eastern is when we usually stream Keyforge. Friday nights, uh, we've been doing Marvel Champions LCG recently, but we have done other board games in the past. Uh, Crokinole was one of them. We also did a series called Card Game Necromancy where we explored older card games and kind of played with starter sets or pre-constructed decks that we had from our older collections. We played about, I think, 13 different games uh, over the course of the beginning of the of the quarantine to sort of explore older mechanics, see how bad or so, how good some of these older card games are. Sure, sure. I remember I remember one in particular. I believe, was it the Dune card game? Um, I think the first 45 minutes was uh, Nathan Dune lore dump. So with... the first, <laughs> we, that rule, the rule book is pretty much un- imparsable. Uh, <laughs> we, we did our best to get through the game and learn the game. 
we have uh, we've gotten some scathing comments on the YouTube video. We've we apparently are not playing that to the standard of the Dune TCG fans, <laughs> but uh, we did our best, and I think it was a very fun video and a fun experience. The game, however, it left a little to be desired. Ah, uh, sure, sure. Unlike the film trailer, I have to get that, <laughs> that in there. Great, great trailer, great trailer. Also, there's a new board game for Dune coming out, but uh, from yeah, Direwolf, yeah. it has some worker placement and some deck building mechanics in it, which sounds great. And I love, Ooh. I love the current Dune board game, the competitive six-player one. But yeah. I hope this one will offer something for less than exactly six players. Justin, uh, what's from? I know uh, we've had the pleasure of meeting at a few in-person events, and you and Nathan have made a made it a point to travel to Vault Tours when we had them. So what's what's one of the most memorable things that's happened to you connected to Keyforge? I will remind you that you beat me in a CL Triad match at the uh, U.S. Grand Championships, if that qualifies. I, I was going to say that. I was going to bring that up. Uh, you, ruined, you ruined my joke, Zach. Thank you. Well, I, I had to get the dig in on myself first. That's the, that's the rule. <laughs> yes, my, my most precious Keyforge memory is I was playing against someone at, uh, at Nationals, and the only way I could win the game is if they went above six amber because I had burned the stockpile in my hand. They knew it was in my deck, um, but they decided yep. to go to seven. So, and that was their choice to go to seven. So at next turn, I played burn the stockpile, threatened for the win. One of I my did, favorite uh, memories. I did leave out the details of, of your <laughs> opponent's uh, choices in that particular that particular situation. No, but anytime I go to a vault tour, there's there's new things. Uh, we meet new people we've never met before from the stream. It's nice to put faces to to names in chat all the time. We we play we've played in a couple tournaments with people from stream, like Lord Farquad played in a uh, in a team tournament with us, and so it's always fun to chat with with our viewers. And I think though one of my favorite memories is. Vault Tour Richmond, um, mm. Nathan winning. I mean, we streamed the whole tournament. That was fun too. We did some commentary. Uh, Justice Blinded is a great co-commentator. Zach, yeah. I think I gave you a. We got your first commentary spot there, right? <laughs> that's right. That was my first ever Keyforge commentary. So we uh, made your career feature. there. So I mean, like that's another great memory for you. You're sure, welcome. sure. Nobody's going to deny that. <laughs> <laughs> so when we had Nathan on the cast, Justin, we heard that you were the one behind the actual filming of the content. If you could select one or two key things, what is the key to making great video content for anyone else out there that is an aspiring video content maker themselves for maybe for gaming? We'll stick with that. Uh, I think it goes back a little bit to what I said earlier about incremental changes. Uh, the biggest thing I will say for tabletop streaming, uh, filming onto a table is the lighting. And it's so hard to get lighting correctly, uh, especially with cards that are in sleeves. They will show any tiny little bit of glare if a light is pointing in the wrong direction. So it's something I have to work on almost every single stream. Or I guess leading up to streams, I'll make sure that there's no glare anywhere on the table. And anytime I change anything about the stream layout, I turn on all the lights and I lay out a card in every single inch of the player mat to make sure there's no stream or there's no glare. So all the lights are pointing at angles and the camera points straight down at the table. So you sort of have to make sure that no lights are bouncing from the table up into the camera. That requires like low lighting. Uh, we have all these photography lights with the umbrellas, all that fancy stuff pointing at the table. They're very close to us. We also have to make sure that they're not causing a glare on the green screen that makes the green screens look funky. It's it's tough. It's a constant challenge. Awesome. But at the same time, you say to people, get stuck in with what you've got and start making content. Absolutely. I mean, some content is better than no content. 
<laughs> Definitely. Agreed. And there's so many resources out there from hitting up people, uh, you know, like like uh, you or Nathan for advice or other creators. There's plenty of people accessible and lots of great uh, like tutorials on this stuff too, all over all over YouTube. So and I did I did make a quick like three minute walkthrough of our stream setup so people could sort of see the equipment I have, how it's laid out, and what it looks like behind the scenes. I put that oh, on that's YouTube. Right. Okay, so let's dive into our main topic for the day then. And this is all about the Tournament of Champions. Um, So let's get stuck in then. What is the Tournament of Champions? Tournament of Champions, okay. It is 100 Keyforge decks from the same set pitted against each other until only one remains. It's a very long-form tournament. Uh, our idea, the entire idea behind our stream, the reason we called it Tabletop Royale is inspired by Battle Royale type games. They were very popular at the time. They're sort of still somewhat popular. Originated with Battle Royale, the movie that came out, I think, in the 90s, it's a Japanese movie, maybe early 2000s, where a bunch of uh, teens were dropped on an island and they were forced to kill each other until only one remained. Very fun stuff. So it's just like that, except with Keyforge decks. <laughs> and if you were to say is it it's more akin to something like Fortnite or more akin to something like Fall Guys and just just for anyone that's un- unwitting one is about blasting your opponent into the stratosphere and one is your bright pink jelly bean trying not to fall off into slime it's probably somewhere in like in the middle I guess right <laughs> there could be some cutthroat games of Keyforge it's true. And my, my favorite part is uh, Tabletop Royale is at the beginning of the Tournament of Champions when all of the decks parachute down onto the table. Yeah, it's, uh, very it's really it takes a great cleanup after that. It's a great visual. <laughs> you guys hide the loading screens really well. <laughs> uh, so it starts with 100 Keyforge decks. And it the tournament is structured in a way so that four decks per stream are played each of those decks are played round robin. So each deck plays against each other deck in that stream for a total of six games. Any deck that goes 2-1 or better advances to the next round. So the first round is 25 streams of four decks playing six games. Mm. All right. Are you with me? That's 150 yeah. games right there. Takes just a little bit of Keyforge. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit of Keyforge. It takes about two and a half to three months to get through those with our stream schedule uh round two is the same structure it is usually 12 to 13 streams of four decks each playing uh playing round robin against each other two ones or three o's advance to the single elimination bracket round now in round two we do not pair any decks that have played against each other again in the same pod again so if they are in a pod in round one they will not be in a pod in round two and we also try to get the three o decks in pods with only other two ones where possible and uh, mm. occasionally there are two three o's and in, in pods i think that only happened three times in our most recent tournament though so most pods are a three o a two one a two one and a two one to try to give a little bit of an advantage to a three o and now we've had three o's eliminated already so wow. that doesn't that does not give them power interesting yes. interesting but yet it makes more sense than the groupings for a lot of sports tournaments across the world so and, <laughs> and, and all decks are within the same set are they not they are all within the same set yes mm. so mm. Uh, after that the three o's and two ones from round two then advance to the single elimination bracket rounds so the worst record a deck could have at that point is four and two total and the best mm. record would be six and oh 
they are seeded based on their win records. So six and O's might end up with buys. Usually, I think in the last two tournaments we've had about four to six buys based on how many decks advanced. It was a, it usually ends up being about 25, 26 decks, I think. And they're pitted against each other. Single elimination games. Here's where we change to best two out of three rounds to try to give the decks uh, fairness for variance and draws. And we also, I didn't say this before, but Nathan and I switch which decks we're playing during the stream. So during the best two out of three games, we actually trade decks between games because we're trying to determine the best deck and not the best player. So that's a very yeah, important Yeah, and you've been really careful to talk about that as well, that you're pitting the decks against one another and not yourselves as players against one another. And and it's a very subtle choice, but it must have ramifications beyond the game itself. And and what was the reason for that? So yeah, we're trying, like I said, we're trying to figure out the best deck and not the best player. Because I mean, some of mm-hmm. some of our decks might be better in the hands of Nathan than they are me. I mean, no, I know Nathan is is better with a certain type of deck than I am. And like, for instance, he can't play Light Tasker on the same level as me, in my opinion. And I can't play Ardreth or Contphage on the same level as him. So it's not fair if those decks are played by me only in our tournament or if Light Tasker is only played by him in our tournaments. So that's that's kind of one philosophy. we're, And we also allow takebacks and we try to allow for chat to weigh in like what, what might have been the best play here and... If if anyone's either of us make a play mistake, uh, we'll point it out. That's sort of changed yeah. as since our first tournament, where we would kind of help each other and say, "Oh, you could do this, this, and this instead, and it might be better." Uh, now we're a little more competitive, I would say, and we we allow take back still if if something looks obviously better. But usually, if I make a play that could have gone either way, but there might have been a second play I could have made that would have been slightly better, I'll just let the first play pass and see how it plays out. Awesome. Awesome. Interesting. And that's a good distinction. I always think if you do think about it as your deck against another deck, then it's easier to uh, deal with a run of bad losses, for instance, Um, (laughs) which can, of course, happen in, in such events. But what have these competitions and really just playing a lot of Keyforge taught you about the principles behind the game? Hmm. Well, (laughs) principles behind the game. I mean, it's taught us a lot just about the value of a board. Uh, For instance, the last two sets, boards are so much more important than they were in Coda, right? And you have to know when the right time is to just use a board, maybe reap out or get the most out of your creatures on the table. Uh, I think a lot more than the first set also now there are creatures that you're very, very incentivized to kill or they'll just beat you. Uh, in Worlds Collide, Falafasaurus is probably the the most heinous example of that. If, if Falafasaurus is getting reaps every single turn, it's going to be tough to win that game. Com Officer Kirby is another example. A lot of Star Alliance guys in Worlds Collide. Also, obviously, a lot of dinos. Uh, Nathan made the rule in Worlds Collide where if you see four dinos on the table... You use four dinos, and I think that philosophy took him to a lot of wins and took me to a lot of wins in Worlds Collide. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he mentioned it from the uh, uh, 
uh, protecting your own self against Dino's side when he was on in March. He said, if you got two dinos on the table, you're okay, but watch out. If there are three dinos on the table, uh, you've got to make a move or you're going to be on the back foot. And if there are four dinos on the table against you, then you're going to lose unless you make a big play. Yeah, you to do whatever you can to get those dinos cold. Uh, that that rule's probably a little bit less so in Mass Mutation. The dinos aren't quite on the same power level they were at in in Worlds Collide, which is not necessarily a bad thing, and they're probably more on the level of where they need it to be balance-wise now, but uh, they can still obviously offer a sufficient threat with three dinos, so you still have to be a little careful. And... To put you on the spot here, Justin, a little bit, uh, do you have any similar rules that people can take away for mass mutation? Oh, boy. Uh, board uh, clearing ability, creature removal, they're, they're probably the most important things in mass mutation, we found. Uh, a way to deal with your opponent's board and multiple ways to deal with your opponent's board are almost entirely necessary to winning games of mass mutation most games at least there are obviously some decks that take exceptions to that that are that are more rush like but a lot of decks develop a board and then use that board in some way to win brilliant brilliant that is wise words and listeners there was no hesitation there that was not edited that was a straight up response (laughs) (laughs) we are now uh i think 200 something games into mass mutation versus mass mutation so that's that's been the, one of the biggest killers yeah certainly i've uh, had the pleasure of tuning in a bit more during uh during quarantine here and it is uh it is certainly more more common for a game just to be totally one-sided if one deck it can be a great deck it can look good but if it doesn't have a gateway or two or or something else to just clear that board it could just it the opponent could just run away with with some good draw the thing i think we've also learned about mass mutation is i i think you can have a mass mutation deck that is very 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 good against other mass mutation decks but is very very bad against other sets and vice versa i think some of the best decks that we have that are mass mutation um as far as an archon meta may not be very good against other mass mutation decks uh there's one deck in particular i'm thinking of that has uh, two mode nithings, one has a capture icon on it's got safe house it's got all kinds of other stealing it plays very much like a coda deck and when i played on tco and the competitive queue i play against other coda decks i play against some more competitive worlds collide decks stuff like that it does great uh it's also got two pain mails so if you're playing against other disc decks that could be a pain for them but it went one and two in our first round and it was knocked out really yeah it's just gone and it's like 81 sass it's got all kinds of stuff going for it but nope, did not advance, did not get a chance to prove itself past that that pod. And maybe it didn't deserve it in our tournament. But I, th- I want to say, and it was this theory, this is my theory as of right now for a mass mutation tournament. I think that the turn, the deck that wins will not be very good across set. Why do you say that out of interest? Uh, so I think that, like I said before, creature control is one of the biggest things in mass mutation. If you can pair creature control with amber generation, you're going to do very well. But with the fact that there are no big amber checks in mass mutation, you're very incentivized to just go to like 14. I mean, go as high as you can every single turn. And you know that your opponent can't deal with it. The only big answer is effervescent principle. So you'll see a lot of games where me and Nathan are just reaping a ton. And you're like, it, you, weigh the, you weigh the choice of do I just take, you know, okay, do I use this creature to fight or do I make an amber? That amber may never leave you. So that, that could be your amber forever. There's no, no, no too much to protect, no interdimensional graph, no burn the stockpile, nothing like that. 
So you don't really have to play around the amount of amber that you have. But if you have a bigger board than the opponent, you're able to generate so much more than them. If you're on immune strategy, you have stuff like Kurzap. That deck's going to be really good against other sets, but may not be so good against other yeah. mass mutation decks. Because if you have Vault's Blessing, all of a sudden you're giving your opponent three or four amber as well. Maybe. Because they have a lot of mutants in their deck. But if you're on an if you're in an Archon type meta that isn't really revolving around mutants, your Kurzap all of a sudden is a one-sided board mm. wipe. Your Vault's Blessing is generating you five amber and the opponent none. Fascinating. And and what kind of deck, as a follow-up question, what kind of mass mutation deck do you think might do very, very well across sets? I, I think uh, a mutant strategy would be pretty good. Uh mm. Kurzap is good. Pismire, great. All those, all those one-sided, if you have more mutants than your opponent, effects are, are going to be pretty strong, I think. The, the Untamed especially. I think there's probably an Untamed Shadows Logos mutant deck that is very good. It's got Kurzap. It's probably got Johnny Longfingers in it. It's mm-hmm. got Cephalogist it's, or Cephalist. It's got Pismire. All kinds of those uh, the sort of techie mutants that, that get good effects as they sit on the board. Yeah, Dark Amber Vault. <laughs> Yeah, Love throw a Dark Amber Ball in there. Why not? <laughs> well, we're building our dream deck. Yeah, let's just we'll put, <laughs> we'll put this can't deck hurt, together. Can't hurt, can't yeah, hurt. yeah. Auto encoder, obviously. Zach, did we play a game where you stole my Dark Amber Ball and used it against me to absolutely destroy me, or was that a bad dream? That's um, rude. Uh, yeah, I'm fairly certain. I'm fairly certain I did steal your Dark Amber Ball in a casual game. Uh, to be to be fair, it was quite late. Uh, casual uh, <laughs> Zach all of our listeners will know that I am not a casual player <laughs> sweaty Ed that's the that's our newest guest on the podcast is sweaty Ed very competitive yeah. <laughs> so uh, Justin have you found uh, have you found that this um, this decks being good within a set uh, was that true with like worlds collide or age of ascension or do or do decks from those previous sets that tended to do well against interset play, uh, did they do also well against other sets? It's pretty true as far as other sets go, too. So the winner of our AOA set was Nibirius, the Apologetically Meaningless. That deck has, I think, like two Amber Control cards. It's got Lash Broken Dreams. <laughs> it's got a Shuler. Oh, it has a Grok as well. So it's got three total but it oh won three the, that's fine yeah it won the aoa tournament on the back of time traveler shenanigans with Helperbot archimedes it's got some brobnar that does some awesome stuff with rock throwing giant rock curling giant uh the disc has i think two or three exhumes so you can exhume time traveler it just did all kinds of crazy stuff uh it did it did a lot of work with the bouncing death quarks the time traveler the archimedes mm. the helper bot all that stuff so that deck however is not that great against other sets because Lack of Amber Control, other sets can sort of counter it pretty well. Uh, we will see more of that. We've we've played it in, I think, our uh, our March Madness tournament brackets, which are, if you don't know, that we take decks from all houses or all sets and pit them against each other in single elimination bracket. Um, for the Worlds Collide tournament, I can't remember the full name of the deck, and I should know this, but it's Andres, and it is a Star Alliance Shadows this deck yes gambling den is in there oh, of course so nathan loves it but uh i've played that deck a good bit on crucible uh i don't have a winning record with it i think i've gone like two or three and eight so i haven't played it a ton but it just isn't quite up to par uh in the games i've played online 
Now that could just be like crucible bias. Everyone's playing their best possible decks in the competitive queue. But I mean, that's the same thing you're going to get in an Archon tournament. So I don't think I would choose to play that, that deck in an Archon tournament. Sure. Sure. That makes, that makes sense. And I think it's uh, really interesting that these, these tournaments of champions bear um, some similarities to like interset sealed Yes. Uh, sealed tournaments, right? So I would say, obviously, these ha- have helped you prepare for those kind of tournaments, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, our our records at sealed vault tours are way better than our records at Archon vault tours, even though I won an Archon vault tour. <laughs> Nathan has won a sealed vault tour. He's top eight, I think, at three or four total sealed vault tours. So he, he's very consistent as a sealed player. And I think I am too. Uh, at the uh, I think one of my... One of my proudest achievements, even more so than winning the Archon Vault Tour, was top eighting at Nationals during mm. that sealed triad AOA tournament. That was just a grueling, long tournament. And I thought my decks were absolute trash. And I think That's right. I still think that they're absolute trash, but I managed to win with them anyway. I think on the back of my experience with, with AOA versus AOA, because I think I, I don't know that this is the most bold claim. I think, I think we have some justification for saying this, but I think Nathan and I have probably played the most AOA versus AOA of almost anyone in the world. So we got a lot of experience there. And, and just out of interest, um, you, you probably also hold the medal for playing the most games against one single person. <laughs> probably. Yes. How do you see that as a, when it comes to a, a, when it translates into a competitive environment and you're in a tournament, how does that benefit you and how does that maybe hold you back? Well, I think being that it's Nathan, I think he is one of the best Keyforge players in the world. It helps me certainly to get that type of experience against someone who plays at that level all the time because he does play at that level on stream all the time. He's always playing to the best of his ability and that certainly helps me become a better player as well. Now, I, it is a little bit different once I go to a Vault Tour and I start experiencing different types of play styles and I have to sort of adapt to those. But it's usually not that difficult for me. Uh, having played other card games competitively in the past and having experience against different types of people, it's, it's, I think ultimately it's a benefit to be playing against Nathan all the time. He's my uh, least sportsman-like opponent I've ever had. <laughs> but he's also your most sportsman-like opponent you've ever had because you don't have another uh, opponent. Right. <laughs> we're looking at the last six months, sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. yeah and, and about that i guess um yeah a, a lot of people aren't able to go out to their stores and actually play other people um what what would you recommend for keeping a kind of civil relationship in a competitive game with someone that you might be playing with a lot more than you were maybe playing with them before 2020 well we don't have a civil relationship at tabletop royale so <laughs> I, can, I have no uh, good advice <laughs> oh gosh Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> that sums that up. Then. <laughs> um, so with with these uh, veering back to the the, the tournament here, um, <laughs> tabletop royale. Tune in for the drama, right? <laughs> the anger. <laughs> so uh, something uh, you mentioned, Justin, when we were talking about this this episode and what these uh, what could we could talk to you about about what you've learned from doing the tournament of champions is that especially in the uh, the first pod, and I think it will show up pl- plenty in the, the later parts of the Tournament of Champions 2, the second pod, and then the elimination bracket, you end up playing 
underpowered decks many times or decks that might have, you know, a clunky house or two or or things that as far as Archon solo would be considered are just not optimal. But what what have you learned about making the best with what you've got in Keyforge through playing the Tournament of Champions? So I think in uh, for as far as bad decks go, the only way they can win is to get a board and use it and the opponent can't do anything about it. A lot of t- we did do a a worst of the worst tournament prior to mass mutation coming out mm, where we took May all misfits, our worst, right? Yeah, May Misfits. We took all our worst decks and we put them against each other and it was a miserable experience. We did not look forward to those streams. We did not have fun playing those games, but we got through the tournament because it didn't matter really what we did in the games. They just went one direction. They kept going in one dire- in the same direction. The games were never close. Uh, one deck would get a board of like Sanctum guys and the other deck couldn't deal with it and that was it. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as bad decks go, you you try to learn what you can do. You hope that you can get a draw that will allow you to win. Sometimes you just can't. Because mm. at, at the end of the day, a creature can still reap unless it's towed. So yeah. just get the creature out there, get your amber and keep moving. Uh, AOA I think is a little different. This is why I like AOA sealed the best because I think, I think quote unquote bad decks can still win. Uh, I will like to point back to my Nationals deck. One of the decks that was my Nationals triad is one of my worst SAS decks I have in my ent- in our entire collection, our entire combined collection. It's like 48 SAS or something. In our May Misfits tournament, it was in the top four or bottom four, however you want to look at it. But I was still able to get wins with it in the Nationals tournament because AOA versus AOA sealed, is a, I think it's a more balanced environment. In, in a triad type format, you're playing against every deck in the in its circulation, right? So there's decks that are probably just as bad as it. We uh, we also found that the War Grumpuses were very overrepresented in our Worst of the Worst tournament. Wow. The War Grumpus team. So I think it was like three of the four top four decks had War Grumpus and <laughs> Grumpus Tamer in them. No, Make so of that I, we will. By top four for May Misfits, you mean decks would lose in advance, and so yeah, a, deck, a deck could only a deck could only like advance if it was losing, right? Yes, yeah. As soon as the wow. deck won a game, it's out of the tournament. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My goodness, uh, I was really into them at least as a as a fun idea when they got spoiled. So it's just it's so sad. That yeah, they they, got... they need a little something extra. If they had skirmish or something, they might be better. Uh, but anyway, back to AOA. I, I think so. The strategy with AOA sealed is if you can get to six in a turn, you just get to six. It doesn't matter how inefficient it is. Get to six, forge a key, because a lot of the time, if you get to six, you'll forge. You want to get to exactly six too. You don't want to go to seven because you get burned the stockpile or Ronnie'd. So yes, I so used I, that strategy sort of, and and I I squeaked out some very very close games in that tournament. Yes, yeah, I still have a scar a, a scar on my Keyforge brain that winces whenever I uh, I go to seven <laughs> uh, I go to seven in those games definitely. But I mean, we we were, I was only able to win those games because of how much AOA I had played in the past. Sure. No, oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, certainly, practice practice makes perfect generally. So it is uh, really nice to be able to go into go into a competition having practiced that. Um, and like you said, that power curve for Age of Ascension being uh, a bit flatter or a bit closer, which means that even if you have a bad deck, you still have a decent chance uh, because you know just what those decks need to do generally. Because there's such a consistency of of a certain kind across across. That's why set. we always recommend to play every deck that you own. We've played every single deck that we've owned at least uh, multiple times. I'm not sure how many times is the minimum. I think the minimum is three total plays on stream for a deck. But it 
get experience with every deck you have. Even if the game ends up not being fun, you might learn a lesson. Again, more wise words. And talking of wise words, from someone that's played as much Keyforge as, as you have, and when you've gone to, to tournaments and you've kind of come out of Tabletop Royale and into different environments, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see players making and what advice would you give to those players to maybe remedy those mistakes? Well, sometimes when I'm watching games on stream or something, I'll perceive something as a mistake because it's not what I would do. And that thing ends up being good for them later. A lot of the time, I won't hold cards. That's just my style. Is I, I try to cycle my hand as much as possible. That's not always right. Uh, so I would say it. don't always trust in your style to always be correct because i'm saying that right now in this instance i'm not always right about things embrace that and think about how you can become a better player by watching others i think i can still become a better player by watching other people play Mm, yeah yeah and and uh, as jeff bezos says um you know not sure if his words are truly wisdom but i think he only hires people that are willing to change their minds and i think i think you really touch on that here that that is central to being a good keyforge player being able to admit that actually you know the way where you do things isn't necessarily right and when you're exposed to new ideas uh take them on board yeah, yeah i'm not sure if that really answered your question but <laughs> that that's my <laughs> no, advice no, for becoming yeah, a better was- player I guess. And I think it's especially important as Keyforge is still a young game, especially as far as our understanding of it is concerned. I also enjoy that because you can't construct decks, it's not as solvable, right? As as another card game, you're always going to be in a different matchup. Sealed will always be interesting and depending on you as a pilot as well as, you know, as well as your luck on on top of that. So I think I think that what is generally good advice and doubly so for for Keyforge because uh, because we're still we're still figuring out how to be great at at Keyforge like as a community. Yeah, and I think I think another thing to keep in mind as as one is watching streams or watching a game of Keyforge is you don't have the full story of that game or of the deck that's being played or of the opponent's deck that's being played. So a, a play might look strange to you. You might say, "Oh, that's the wrong play." I've I've seen uh, I've seen commentators even like not use that, but I've seen commentators criticize plays of games that are happening while they're being played, and I, I'm just thinking, hmm, I think there was a reason that they made that play and it ended up paying off for them a couple turns later. For instance, holding a card or fighting a specific creature that sort of seemed un- inoptimal at the time, but ended up paying off down the road for a reason of of a matchup or a card in their deck that they're playing toward. Sure. Sure. Mm. I think a funny example of that was um, not, and the commentators were not mean about it at all. It was in the uh, the glorious few, the tournament that Sanctimonious held, and uh, Jake, one of the co-hosts of Sanctimonious, was watching uh, one of Nathan's games, and Nathan made a choice where, uh, and they weren't direct. You know, he wasn't direct. He said, "Didn't say that was wrong." He says, right. "I don't know why Nathan did that. I'm not really sure why he made that choice." And then two or three turns later it became hugely apparent that Nathan had just seen three turns into the future, (laughs) correctly guessed what had happened, and they were laughing their butts off because they were like, we have just been outplayed by Nathan and we're not even playing in the game. One of the the best plays in that that tournament by Nathan, I think, was Dave had played a Jargogel and put a card under it. Nathan decided to play a very suboptimal Hysteria to return the Jargogel to Dave's hand 
and put the card that was underneath it into his discard pile to be purged by an Infernus. That card, I believe, was Data Forge. Data Forge was the way Dave intended to win the game, and that's how he had won the first game. So Nathan, I think, very frequently will make plays in tournaments that will make the common Keyforge player say, what? Why did he do that? That seemed, that seemed awful, but then it ends up paying off several turns later. Yes, I remember specifically in that game, it's some of the only Keyforge where um, in that sort of tournament setting where I've been on the edge of my seat. Yeah, it was intense. During the I was, game. I was literally sitting there sweating watching his stream. Yep. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, so and, if, if you have not seen the uh, finals of Glorious Few, Dave versus Nathan, watch it. It's I highly recommend it. It's some of the best Keyforge I think that has ever been played. I, I fully agree. And when Nathan purged that data forge, Dave hopped into the chat as this was on the crucible online, Dave hopped into the chat and said, ah, now it's a fair game because <laughs> he knew without, without that card, he'd actually have to play uh, a yep. straight up key forge. <laughs> yep. You and Nathan have had quite a lot of tournament success between the two of you. How do you both prepare for tournaments and what advice would you have for other players looking to top cut in preparing for their tournaments? <laughs> we, really, we really don't. We, we stream. We, uh, outside of playing three times a week on yeah, Twitch. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much all we do. We don't, we don't play any Keyforge outside of stream at, at the house. So uh, yeah, we, we have done, I think, prep for the Nationals tournament. We did a stream of some triad experience where we opened three decks and we chose a house we'd ban we explained why that we'd ban or we chose a deck we'd ban explained why we'd ban it even though we couldn't actually like look at the lists still try it as dumb anyway we 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 did we have historically done one stream to prep for tournaments where we tried to play the format of that tournament so the answer is not much (laughs) but i would still (laughs) recommend playing as much keyforge as you possibly can yeah, and that sounds like it. Just play, just play right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, we we <laughs> stream so much keyforge. We play so much keyforge that we're always sort of in that that prep. Mm-hmm. However, the games we play might not necessarily be good archon prep because it's set versus set. Uh, that's another reason why we were looking forward to Vault Warrior because it was going to have that set versus set play in it. We yeah. felt like we could do pretty well in that sort of environment. Mm, yeah mm. yeah hopefully that comes back hopefully yeah, that i'm, not, comes I'm back. not convinced it's ever gonna happen but we'll see <laughs> uh well speaking of giant piles of money our patreons have submitted some questions uh that we that we'd like to ask <laughs> giant <laughs> giant piles of money it's all appreciated all appreciated yeah, uh, patreon did i not get to uh, ask a question uh, you, you, you can certainly do so why is you justin so handsome that uh, so I've got a I've got a question here from Creamcorn. I uh, don't know who that is. A question here from Creamcorn is uh, Justin. Why are you so handsome? Oh, uh, you know, I just wake up in the morning and it just happens. Natural. No good answer just, for you. Sorry, Creamcorn. Just just top decking top decking that handsomeness. Oh, that's right. Top decking that handsomeness. High rolls. High rolls. <laughs> um. Uh, but we have one here from uh, Sky Jedi, uh, local local troublemaker, and he asks, uh, "What's the most mm-hmm. overlooked card?" Francis the Economist has has come through and shown his value many times in our tournament so far. Uh, the ability to give an opponent an amber can be good for you. A lot of the time, they use a key frog or something to key cheat and have no amber, and you need to give them an extra one. Sometimes you need to give them an extra amber so your ransack ends up hitting for more. Uh, Nathan told me about a game he watched on stream where the player played Ransack, stole four total Amber, 
and could have attacked with a Francis the Economist before playing the Ransack, and he would have stolen one more Amber during that thing. So it's little subtle things. Uh, if you're ahead in a game, Francis is good. Giving you Amber and your opponent Amber is really inconsequential at that point. There are cards. So I think he's he's very sneaky in his power. I, I, I've, I've come to appreciate Francis the Economist. Also, there are a lot of creatures in that three-power range that you want to skirmish down in Mass Mutation. So the moral of the tale here is ignore shady economists at your peril. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so we have another question from Duke. Are decks that do well in your set tournaments of champions the same ones that you would take to Archon events? Uh, so decks that do well are generally a good a good starting point to look at to take to Archon. Uh, Light Tasker was second in our, in our Worlds Collide tournament. And obviously, I won a tournament with Light Tasker. It lost to Andres, the deck that ended up winning, because of Gambling Den. So mm. it, we found out that is a weakness of Light Tasker. Uh, it is also lost in our March Madness tournament to a, a like a Grump Buggy deck. So yes, it, it, that is a good starting point. Uh, I think we talked about it a little earlier. I probably wouldn't take any of the winners so far to an Archon tournament because I just don't think that they're quite on the same level of Archon decks, but sometimes you have to dig down to the collection a little bit to find a good Archon deck. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, you know, getting plays in with at least all of your decks to, to see if there's some, some special sauce there, or there are decks that just might be great against particular matchups or archetypes, you know, you'll probably face like, I guess. And I, I think it's, uh, it's worth noting that, Archon is a format of of like meta call, right? You, you, there's a type of deck that is usually most popular at the time, so you want to you want to analyze that as much as you can. It's, it's obviously not that easy to do right now since there aren't any major tournaments going on. But that was one of the reasons I ended up wanting to play Light Tasker during the PAX Archon event is because it did very well against those Coda Rush decks, and that was that was the majority of of people bring that what what people would bring to those tournaments at the time. So. Yeah, and people uh, hadn't weren't used to playing against a deck like Light Tasker with the the tricks that Light Tasker has with any four by four and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Also, you have to keep in mind that that Keyforge is largely a game of matchups. So we could have had an amazing deck in this tournament that just got knocked out first round because it was in a pod of bad matchups for it. It might mm. be a really awesome deck, but we will have to we'd have to dig down in the collection, and play it again to to figure that out. Um, and then lastly, uh, also from, from Duke here, was there a specific uh, combo that wasn't really discussed or known beforehand that, uh, as far as you were aware, you and Nathan found on Tabletop Royale uh, just by playing so many different decks of a, of a new set? As in if there was there a combo that we discovered we think first? I don't think so. Um, we probably have run into almost every corner case of card imaginable. Uh, maybe not everyone, but not all the ones that, that get posted on the on the Facebook group. But there have been some some questionable things that are like, what happens when we do this? <laughs> I don't know. We have to kind of consult chat and we have to like ask rules experts in chat what ha- what happens here. Uh, one of my favorite interactions that we found kind of just randomly by playing a game was animator plus monuments so we have a deck that has mm. animator and monument to strix and monument to primus so during your logos turns you could activate your monument to strix you could essentially steal amber if there was a strix in your discard pile which there usually was so it got 
tons and tons of value by bouncing back and forth between logos and sorry in turns and stacking amber on it. So animator plus artifacts is is a pretty awesome interaction in mass mutation. And that's something that just sort of I looked down at my board and I said, oh, I can do this, huh? That sounds good. <laughs> Nice. Have you all run into the double gambling den situation before? I don't think we have a double gambling den deck. Uh, I don't think we've played any matchups where there are two in play that I can remember. It might have happened, but uh, that's that's a very interesting situation. I've played against that a couple times on TCO, where mm-hmm. if you get the first one right, you get four amber. If you get it wrong, then you end up getting two anyway. So it's, that's right. tough to play around. Yeah. Huge thank you, Justin. Thank you for for coming on Call of Discovery and sharing your your wisdom with us about uh yeah, how to get an edge in Keyforge and uh the inside scoop on the tournament of I will Champions. say one more thing. Uh we have plans mm. for the remainder of the year after this tournament finishes for a very cool new set of Keyforge content that we're gonna be bringing to you. Ooh. A very unique type of Keyforge content. So that's all I can say for now. Well, until I'm excited. Someone, until someone cashes in our 150k Mushroom Man reward in chat, we will reveal what that content will be. <laughs> ah. Ah. If you're not aware cool. of what Mushroom Mans in chat are, is they're called channel points, and you get them for watching the channel. I think we actually have someone that is at 130k right now, so it won't be too much longer. Great to have you on, and uh, listeners, you will see Justin again in next week's deck discovery episode, where we might be talking about a deck that is a little bit familiar to some of you TTR fans. But thank you so much for joining us today. You can find us in every single one of those usual places that you would normally find us, the Facebooks, the Twitters, and of course the Instagrams. If you are enjoying Call of Discovery, and I hope you are, and you're willing and able monetarily to support us, our Patreon is linked below where you can put your own weird and wonderful decks into the spotlight and of course have a say in our future through our Patreon-only Discord. Let us also know. First of all, just a huge thank you to our most recent Patreon, Dan Shepperson. Dan, great to have you as part of the Patreon family. And let us also know what you'd like to see more of and less of in future shows. We don't bite, so we take feedback. Uh, Please subscribe as well and leave a review as long as it's a one-star review or a five-star review on your regular podcast app. Um, But most importantly, if you think a friend might just enjoy this podcast, then please, please, please do help them to discover it. Have you answered the call of discovery? Oh, 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 and we have a fancy email too called podcast at callofdiscovery.com. What's that? Did we buy our own domain? Ooh, ooh, yes, I think we did. Are we patting ourselves on the back for a very easy task that only costs us $20 per year? Yes, we are. (laughs) Well, we have dreams.